Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, a feminist, client-centered, sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Strout. On each show, we tackle a topic that impacts our sexual and reproductive health by inviting members of our community who work specifically on the subject. Reproductive Left covers a variety of issues, including, but certainly not limited to, reproductive rights, feminism, access to services, sexuality, gender, and relationships. To wrap up our show, we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions in our Ask Mabel segment. Be sure to stick around for it. Good afternoon, and thanks for tuning in. I'm replaying the first ever episode of Reproductive Left to air on community radio, WERU. The interview is with Posey Cowan from Blue Hill, who found the banners from the suffrage movement in her family's attic. In this interview, we discuss her discovery and the adventure it has taken her on. I've decided to re-air this episode today in honor of Women's Equality Day that falls at the end of this month, August 26th. Women's Equality Day marks the anniversary of the 19th Amendment when women won the right to vote after many years of dedication and determination by hundreds of women in the suffrage movement. In today's interview, we discuss a lesser-known suffrage leader, Alice Paul. Her leadership, radical tactics, and fierce dedication are recognized as the final push needed to secure the right to vote. In addition to Alice Paul, there are countless other women, especially women of color, who played central roles in the movement, yet whose stories are rarely told and whose names are rarely mentioned, like Ida B. Wells, Mary Church Tyrell, and Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, just to name a few. It's not only their names that's left out of our history books. We also rarely acknowledge that while all American women received the constitutional right to vote with the 19th Amendment, within the same decade, state laws and vigilante practices effectively disenfranchised black women. It wasn't until the 1960s and the civil rights movement that black women both legally and in practice obtained the right to vote. This is important to say every time we highlight Women's Equality Day. It marks a day of progress. In celebration of Women's Equality Day, throughout the month of August, we are gathering women's stories of their experiences voting that will be posted to our Mabel's Voices blog. Here are two stories that we've already received. My mother was a suffragette and spoke about the days before women could vote. Her first vote was in the town of Conrad, Montana, where she and her family homesteaded. Then, when I turned 21, that was when we were allowed to vote in those days. I voted in the 1940 elections in Minneapolis. How proud I was and how proud my father was when I entered the polling booth. I do not recall the spring elections, but I do remember the presidential elections later that year. I have voted in every single election since my first vote, often by absentee ballot after we retired and we started our retirement travel. And now a woman is running for president. How things have changed. And that story is from Peggy, age 98. 
Here is another one. I was raised in a Democratic family, and I was always told the Democrats were for the working people. I began voting at age 21 or 22, and I was proud that I voted for Franklin D. Roosevelt and John F. Kennedy. I stopped voting about 25 years ago. I feel as though my vote doesn't count. I've worked very hard. I have had several jobs to support my family, and I was in a physically and emotionally abusive relationship. I did not have the time or energy to vote. And that is from a woman age 90 from Maine. Now we want to hear from you. Why do you vote? Or why don't you vote? What was it like for you to vote the first time? Do you have stories from your grandmother or your great-grandmother or your grandmother's great-grandmother? We want to hear them all. Email your story to educate at MabelWadsworth.org. And now here is Posey's story. Welcome, Posey, to Reproductive Left. Thank you for being here today. So let's just start at the beginning. How did you feel when you discovered the suffrage banners? When I saw the banners in the box that was uh, very old and hadn't been opened for a long time, I just had the sense that they were important. I had no idea really what they were and what, how they fit into history. And I also didn't know anything about my grandmother. So they led me to learning a lot of information. But I just, I, I look at them now in a very different way, I guess is the best, how important they are, how they're a symbol for how hard women worked. What did you do after your discovery? What I did after my discovery was... On a whim, I actually Googled my great-grandmother, Sophie Meredith, and it was totally on a whim because she was just an ordinary woman living in Richmond, Virginia. I knew very little about her, and there would be no reason that she would be on the web. But when I put her name in, um, something came up, which was that she had led a group of women to picket the White House. And then I knew that I needed to find out more about her. That led me to discover the Sewell Belmont House, which is the political party that she was involved with, the National Women's Party, which was the small group of suffragists that were known as the Radicals. And that led me also to the Library of Congress, where I saw articles about her and pictures about her. And then uh, a couple of years later, I made two more discoveries um, because I went back up in the attic. I was curious. I'd found the banners there. And then, like, what else would be in the attic? And I found an old trunk with... uh, amazing uh, newspaper articles about her work and what she did. And I also found an old box of letters that had been written to her by her family. So as a result of that and uh, doing other research, I was able to put together uh, what she did, what her role was in that last decade, and also learn for myself what happened because it's not in the textbooks. 
Out of all of those things that you discovered, what was the most important? What I learned was much more specifically how long and how hard women fought for the right to vote. Up until I had made the discovery, the right to vote for me was just, I took it for granted. Um, I knew something about Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth uh, Carey Stanton, but I didn't really have any sense about what it took. It took 72 years from the first time that women met the Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls in 1848. And um, even after the Senate passed the suffrage movement uh, amendment in 1919, there were barely enough states to ratify it. It was really close. So it, it wasn't a done thing even... Um, when we actually got it passed, the suffragists got it passed. So listen to this, Abby. This is really incredible. This is a quote from Gail Collins, who's a New York Times um, writer. And she wrote at the 90th anniversary in 1910 of women winning the vote that what it took um, was 56 referendum campaigns directed at male voters 480 campaigns to get legislatures to submit suffrage amendment to voters, 47 campaigns to get constitutional conventions to write women's suffrage into state constitutions. This is not all. 277 campaigns to get state party conventions to include women's suffrage planks. 30 campaigns to get presidential party campaigns to include these women suffrage planks in a party platform, and 19 campaigns with 19 successive Congresses. That is amazing. That is amazing. Wow. Um, what... I'm almost speechless after hearing that, but what was your grandmother's role in the movement? What she did that I discovered, um, she was a Virginia. So actually, um, at the end of the 19th century, there was a, a lot of progressive movement, and there were women who were really interested in child labor reform and um, the sort of working conditions and health. And she and many of the women in Richmond tried to get legislation passed, and they were not able to do it. So she got, with her colleagues, very interested in having the right to vote and to have more input in laws. So she helped found the Equal Suffrage League in Richmond, Virginia in 1910. And she was vice president and head of a lot of the committees. They set up uh, education programs, spoke on street corners, um, and increased their membership. But she became very frustrated with the lack of progress getting a state suffrage amendment. The South, in particular, uh, had no interest in having uh, the federal government 
tell them what to do or to have women be able to vote. So she joined a very interesting woman whose name was Alice Paul, who was a Quaker. And Alice Paul was really responsible for reinvigorating the suffrage movement. They had sort of died out in 1910, 1913. They weren't really getting very far. And she joined it, and Alice Paul used much more spectacular kinds of things like parades, demonstrations, getting the press on their side, uh, hunger strikes, and very intense lobbying to give the final push. So my grandmother joined with her. She was on the advisory council. She established the Virginia branch, and she worked really hard. And she was actually one of the women who um, was arrested um, during the time that the women, the suffragists, picketed the White House. Uh, And so when she died, she was really um, respected for all her work. She was, there was a photograph on her, on the weekly newsletter of her organization that said, feminist leaders, feminist leader dies, women mourn. Um, The Richmond paper had an editorial that called her a captain of the suffrage campaign in Virginia, and engraved on her tombstone was a pioneer for women. None of us in my generation knew anything about this. It must have felt so incredible to, to learn this about her and your connection. You did mention that she was arrested. Um, did she did she go to jail? I know women were jailed at that time. She was arrested. I was able to um, establish that the the suffragists kept really good records of who was arrested and who actually went to jail. And um, she did not go to jail. And through the letters, I learned that she didn't because. She, her family was very worried about her health, and they wrote things like, it's better to be a live, a live suffragist than a dead one. Um, so she didn't go to jail, um, but a lot of the suffragists did. Um, 500 suffragists were actually arrested between 1917 and 1919, and 168 of them actually went to jail, and the uh, reason the charge was obstructing traffic or demonstrating without a permit, uh, things that they were silently standing in front of the White House, and uh, that's what they used to try to get them out because they were embarrassing the president. And the uh, most shocking thing I learned about the women who were put in jail was that Alice Paul, the leader, went on a hunger strike and they tortured her. They jammed a feeding tube down the back of her nose and poured eggs and milk uh, into her and uh, three times a day for three weeks. And that just, can you imagine that? Can you imagine men who torturing their wives and their sisters, I think 
that's the biggest piece of American history I just can't wrap myself around. You're listening to Reproductive Left. I am Abby Strout. My guest today is Posey Cowan, and we are talking about her great-grandmother's involvement in the women's suffrage movement. I want to ask next, after doing all this research, how has it influenced the way that you vote or how you feel when you are at the polls? Well, you uh, can assume or imagine that, of course, I vote. Um, How can I not vote after this incredible effort that uh, these women for 72 years um, did for us. Um, and I, I, it's amazing to me that men fought so hard to keep women from voting. So you can bet I'm voting. Um, I also remember my great-grandmother and and really sort of silently thank them. I'm not taking for granted anymore that I have a right to vote. Um, And I also think about all the women in the world, so many of them, who can't vote, who don't have the right to vote, who are still treated like second-class citizens, who are controlled and abused by their husbands, fathers, and brothers, who are child brides and who don't have access to education and health care. That just, that puts me over the edge too. And, you know, a couple of other things actually. Um, There are only 64% of women who could vote that actually vote uh, in national elections. And think about, if more women voted, how much more effect we could have on uh, laws and policy. And um, they're actually the younger age group from 18 to 30, only 50% of them vote. And every vote matters. Um, People think they don't, but there have been some very close elections, both locally and nationally. And, uh, I also think about the fact that 100 years later, there are only 20% women in Congress. Uh, I think my great-grandmother and the suffragists would roll over in their graves if they knew we were still not having equal input into laws that are affecting all of us. You've spent the last few years showing your banners and telling the story. What have the reactions been? The reactions have been is that when I ask people at my presentations if they know Alice Paul, there's maybe one hand that goes up. And Alice Paul is one of the most important uh, women in 20th century history. She helped push along um, the right to vote and enfranchise 16 million women and uh, which was half the population. And she did it in uh, leading a very nonviolent campaign that used civil disobedience. And she's not even mentioned, and very few people know who she's at, who she is. So uh, some of the people are like uh, I am. When I found that out, I was outraged that I didn't know that history. 
Uh, I want to mention that there is a great documentary called Iron Jawed, Jawed in Your Face Jaw, Angels, which is the story about Alice Paul and her small militant suffrage organization. And I wish that it is shown in every history class starting in middle school through college. Um, You can also rent it from Netflix, and you can buy it from Amazon for $50. I recommend everybody sees it, um, men and women. Uh, It's a fun movie. Hilary Swank is in it, and it's perfect for Christmas gifts and great stocking stuffers. Stocking stuffers. I agree. I like that film a lot. Um, I saw it. I think you actually showed it when you came to the university or maybe we showed it just before you came and it opened my eyes to the part of the suffrage movement I had no idea about. Great. I'm, I'm glad and I hope there are more and more people will feel the same way you do. I think it should always be shown around election season. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the way I saw that movie was at the Blue Hill Library before an election in 2004 And the Democratic Party showed it at the library. And that's when this whole journey began. And I just saw the flyer and said, oh, this looks interesting. I didn't have any sense about why it was being shown during the election time. But you're right. It should be shown always before elections everywhere. And at that point, you hadn't found your banners yet. No, but I found them six months later. Wow. How is that for coincidence? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And where do you see this project taking you? I, because I know, because I realized from my presentations that so few people know this part of women's history, I feel really uh, very motivated to continue to give them and the banners themselves are spectacular. Um, I have life-size copies of them that almost look real uh, because I need to preserve them, and they'll obviously go to a museum at some point. I've also been uh, organizing seminars for Colloquy Down East, which is our local sort of educate, one of our local educational uh, programs. Um, And the current one I'm doing is on feminist activists in the arts. And uh, we have speakers who talk on feminist writers, feminist filmmakers, and local feminine artists. And I'm also writing an academic paper to get my great-grandmother's name and her role back into history. I have one more question for you before we move into our Ask Mabel segment. Our show is focused on reproductive and sexual health. Why do you think it's important that we talk about the suffrage movement and voting today? Well, I think it's really important to talk about the suffrage movement and voting today because... We need more women to be voting and to understand what their history is so they won't take it for granted. And we need to be electing more women in Congress. Um, I don't want just a few men to be making decisions 
about my reproductive and sexual health or anything that affects me or my children. Um, there really needs to be 50% women in Congress, so there's a balanced discussion about what laws, what kind of laws and what laws should be passed. And uh, my last comment to you, Abby, is do you know that there are some countries whose constitution mandates that 50% of the politicians are women? And that would be my ultimate goal. I did not know that, actually. Um, but speaking of women in Congress, we have a lot of women on the ballot this year. In both districts, we have women running for the House. We have two women running against each other for the Senate. And throughout the state, we have um, women running for the State Senate and for the State House. And it isn't too late to vote. Polls are open till 8 p.m. As long as you're in line by 8, you can vote. And if you've moved or if it's your first time voting, don't worry. You can register right at the polls. I want to thank you, Posey, for being here with me today. I love hearing the story of your great-grandmother. Oh, you're very welcome, Abby. This has been great. And listeners, please don't go anywhere. We'll be right back to answer your sexual and reproductive health questions in our Ask Mabel segment with nurse practitioner Terry Marley DeRozier. Welcome to Ask Mabel with nurse practitioner and co-founder Terry Marley DeRozier. She's here to answer your sexual and reproductive health questions. If you have a question, please email educate at mabelwadsworth.org. Our first question today is from Julie. She asks Terry, what are the earliest signs of pregnancy that you might notice even before you miss a period? Well, Julie, you may not notice any symptoms at all um, before missing a period with early pregnancy, um, but some women do feel that they have increased breast tenderness um, prior to uh, their period starting, which may be a little bit more significant uh, with pregnancy. Uh, Women also may notice that they have a little more frequency of urination. Uh, they may also feel like they have some bloating and cramping. Unfortunately, these can also be uh, premenstrual symptoms, so it may be difficult to tell by symptoms um, prior to the missed period. All right, our next question is from Samantha. She writes, I've heard stress can impact my reproductive health. What does that look like and why does that happen? Samantha, it's uh, very well documented that stress has a major effect on our uh, bodies physically, even in a short-term way. Um, all of us probably at some times have experienced increased heart rate, headaches, stiff neck, tight shoulders, back pain, sweating, sweaty palms. Uh, we can even have an upset stomach, um, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Uh, stress really does have an impact on, on our 
bodies, and uh, including it has an impact on our reproductive uh, health as well. It can be linked to lower uh, fertility rates, uh, menstrual irregularities, and painful periods, and there has been a link with uh, problems with pregnancy and stress, and in men we know that erectile uh, problems can be secondary to stress. Uh, stress affects our immune system and increasing um, increases our likelihood that we will become sick more frequently. If we have a chronic illness such as AIDS, often the symptoms will be worse when stress is heightened. Uh, people who have uh, genital herpes will often notice that their incidence of recurrences increase uh, when they're under a lot of stress. Um, Stress is linked to other physical things that we are, you know, certainly aware of, you know, increased blood pressure, blood clots, heart attack, and heart failure. And the leading cause of death uh, in women is secondary to heart disease. So if we can get a handle on our stress and learn better ways, you know, to cope with stress, uh, it benefits us for a lifetime. You know, some of those ways um, to cope with stress might be that you listen to music, uh, sit alone, um, outdoors in a peaceful uh, place, uh, exercise, get deeply involved in an activity, write in your journal, uh, pray, uh, or play with a pet. And if all else fails, shut it down, take a nap. Um, explore what works for you and learn to relax and breathe. That's it for Ask Mabel with Terry Marley DeRozier. Thanks for listening. That is all we have for you today. Thank you for tuning in. And remember, throughout the month of August, we are collecting stories of women's experiences voting as we celebrate Women's Equality Day. Please send us your story, educate at MabelWadsworth.org. If you want to listen to past episodes of Reproductive Left, you can find us on WERU.org in the archives. We're also on SoundCloud. That's soundcloud.com slash MabelWadsworth. And you can subscribe on iTunes or through whatever podcast app you use. Thanks for listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by WERU and Mabel Wadsworth Center. I'm Abby Strout, and please tune in next time, the first Tuesday of the month at 4.30, right here at Community Radio WERU, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, or online at WERU.org.